Well, it's a, a real joy and a privilege uh, and a delight to share with you in God's Word this morning. And uh, I've been thrilled to enjoy our time together this morning. It's great to see the children singing so enthusiastically and learning uh, these great truths from the Scriptures. Now, what we have before us this morning is a letter. Can I ask you, have you ever opened anyone else's mail? You're not supposed to do that, are you? Now, here we have a letter written by the great Apostle Paul to a group of churches whom he loved, and yet he had great concern for them. I always like to say, with regards to some of these things, um, the Bible was written for us. It was inspired by the Spirit of God for each and every one of us. But we have to recognise that it was written in a time and a place to address specific things, which are for our learning and our wisdom. But it wasn't always written to us, was it? Paul was writing to these Christians. Now it's for us, and we're going to benefit by the wisdom of God from what Paul had to say this morning. But it is so helpful for us to try to understand what was happening there and then, and what was on Paul's heart, and what were his concerns for these Christians. And then we can reflect and respond uh, to what God wants to say to us about these things. Now let me ask you a question. Think about what other people might say when they think about you. Are you a pain? <laughs> Somebody's nodding at me. I, I know that I can be a pain. I can be really nitpicky, finickety about details. Let me give you an example. If my wife cooks one of the family's favourite meals, and she is a wonderful cook, but let's suppose she doesn't include one of the ingredients that normally goes in. It might just be a very small thing, like a, you know, a particular herb. Not like, I'm not talking about like the main ingredient. A little, little something. I notice that. Now I know I shouldn't say anything. <laughs> because I should just be grateful that somebody has been kind enough and loving enough to cook a wonderful and a delicious meal for me. But I want you to imagine we took that same approach with your car. Doesn't matter, does it, if a little bit of oregano is missing out of the, I don't know, the chili or the lasagna or whatever it goes in. But imagine your car has run out of oil and you haven't got any oil. So you say, no, I know what I'll do. I'm going to go to the kitchen cupboard. I've got some sugar there. Sugar, yeah, I'll put some sugar in and you should be fine. What would happen? Disaster. Oil goes in the engine of a car, not sugar. There are some things about our faith and practices that we have freedom to change. Ed and I were talking about that this morning. He said, we're just going to have two hymns this morning. The colour of the chairs, the time we meet, how many hymns we have, we're free to choose those things. But there are other things, if we change them, 
there'll be disaster. And Paul the Apostle is writing to these believers to warn them. Listen to what he says. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to another gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary or different to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed, or in the translation that was read to us before, eternally damned. As we've said before, so now we say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. If you have a look at some of the other translations, they render the words that Paul says at the beginning of that sentence this way. I am shocked. I'm amazed. I marvel. I wonder. It's as if he's saying, I can't believe it. And his assessment of their response to those people who were troubling them, to those people who had been teaching false things about the gospel, well, we find it in chapter 3 and verse 1. He says, Oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? So what Paul is saying to them is this, look, the gospel is so precious. It's so important. If anyone tries to change it, even a little bit, and he means anyone. He says, even if we, Paul and his colleagues, or an angel, tries to distort the gospel, they should be cursed. Wow. These are really strong words. It's a little bit intense, isn't it? Why, Paul? What's the issue? What is at stake here? Now, I wish we could do things a little bit different this morning. Um, this is a letter. And we're just reading a bit of the letter. Oh, it would be much better if we could read the whole thing. It takes a slow reader, like maybe about 20 minutes to read. So why don't you, when you get home over a cup of tea this afternoon, read the whole letter, beginning to end. And as you read the letter, you'll see the reason why Paul is so agitated. Do you know, normally in the epistles, the letters, you get a little introduction, a little commendation. So Paul says, I'm so glad to hear about what you're doing. And then he says, I pray for you. Not so with this one. Straight away, he's dealing with the issue. He's agitated by these false teachers. Because this gospel of good news had brought these Galatian Christians into a wonderful relationship with God. They'd become part of God's family, adopted into his family, heirs of a promise that was made 
thousands of years before to Abraham. You see, Paul had shared the good news. He'd preached the gospel to these people and they had believed. They trusted in Jesus and they'd been justified. They'd been put into a right relationship with God on account of what Jesus had done. He died, his perfect life paid for sin, and now they were forgiven. All because of Jesus. Now those who were causing trouble were essentially saying, that's not enough. So you can, you can actually read about who, who these folks may have been in Bible commentaries. Some people refer to them as Judaizers. What does that mean? Well, that's not, not completely accurate. To, to Judaize is what these false teachers wanted the Galatian Christians to do. To Judaize would be to convert to Judaism. And that's what they wanted these Galatian Christians to do. They wanted them to do that by becoming circumcised. And Paul cares for these Christians. In chapter 4 and verse 19, he says, My little children. And he is anxious to see Jesus formed in them. He doesn't want them to think that the good news is Jesus plus something else. By the way, if I were to ask you this morning to write down what you think the good news is, what the gospel means, gospel, the, the word is evangelion, it means good news, but what would you say it is? How would you describe the gospel in a sentence? Or two. I challenge you to write it down just from your own recollection and then have a little look at Mark chapter 1. Have a little look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and see how the Bible defines the gospel. When we do Christianity Explored and we're introducing people who don't know Jesus to who he is, we go through Mark's gospel. And we make the point that the whole of the Bible, from beginning to end, is about Jesus. The gospel is about Jesus. It is the good news about Jesus, the Son of God. I want you to notice three things as we look at this text together this morning. Firstly, false teachers will try to distort the gospel. Secondly, the gospel is from Jesus, and the gospel is Jesus. And thirdly, I want you to notice how Paul says the gospel changes and transforms people's lives. So that's where we're going. So let's dive in and see what we can learn together. <laughs> Firstly, false teachers will try to distort the gospel. Verse 7, as we've read... Uh, he says, not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. If we were to make a list of all of the erroneous or wrong teachings that have been since the time when the scriptures were first 
written. It would be a very long list. But there are two areas of teaching that are often the focus of attack for false teachers and that we absolutely must defend against or else we won't have any good news to share. The first relates to the person and nature of Jesus and the second to the content and the nature of the gospel. The first of these false teachings John deals with in first and second John. There were those who denied that Jesus had come in the flesh. They denied that he was human. Quite ironic, isn't it, in today's culture, in our day and age. It's the other way around. People are quite happy to say that Jesus was human, but God in the flesh? We must hold on to the Bible's teaching that the second person of the Trinity, the Son, took upon himself human flesh. As John reminds us, the word became flesh. But here, Paul's concern is with the second of these two attacks. The content and the nature of the gospel. Look at verses 3 and verses 4 and verses 6. Let me just read verse 6 to you. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. The gospel is about grace. We can't get right with God or become part of his family by keeping a set of rules. He says as much in chapter 2 and verse 16. No one's justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Messiah Jesus. Do you remember when Luke commended a group of people in a place called Berea for checking out the truth of what they've been taught. This was in the synagogue that people searched through the scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, what they would refer to as the Hebrew Bible, to see if what Paul was saying about Jesus was in the scriptures. It's there in Acts 17. And do you know what it says? It says they did that, and as they did, many of them believed. This is how we defend against false teaching. We need to know the Bible. All of it. In Luke chapter 24, and if you've read the story, I reckon you think, I wish I could have been there. Because in Luke chapter 24, after the resurrection, on the Emmaus Road, Jesus opens up all of the Hebrew scriptures with those who are walking with him. And he shows them how they were about him. So study. Work really hard to learn God's word because there are false teachers who want to distort the good news. Second, the gospel is from Jesus and the gospel is Jesus. He tells these believers three important pieces of information. Verse 1, that he is an apostle. Verse 12, that his gospel came directly from Jesus, not from man. And thirdly, that his gospel is Jesus. What was the content of what Paul preached? Verse 16, he preached Christ. So firstly, very quickly, he's an apostle. He was personally chosen and called. 
and commissioned by Jesus and authorised to teach in Jesus' name. That's what an apostle is. This was a small, unique group who Jesus personally appointed. In other words, Paul had authority to teach these churches in Galatia. What Paul spoke was Christ's message on Christ's authority. So he defended his apostolic authority in order to defend the message. Second, his gospel came directly from Jesus. Verse 12. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through revelation. A revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul wasn't making this stuff up. He had, well, you do in Revelation. And he says it was revealed. He had an apocalypse. That's what that word means. To reveal, to uncover. Jesus opened his eyes to the truth of the gospel. Do you remember on the, the Damascus Road when Paul was converted? His physical eyes were blinded. And he needed to receive his physical sight back. But here Paul is saying, actually I've got to see in a spiritual sense what this is all about. Jesus showed me who he was and what he has done. And it turned my life around completely. Once a persecutor of Christians and now a missionary. And thirdly, the gospel is Jesus. Verse 16, he preached Christ. Now I could stay on this point for a long time. He says Jesus called him by grace and revealed his son to him. So Paul would preach Jesus, who is the good news amongst the Gentiles. Now as we've said, Paul was uniquely set apart for this task from his birth, taking the gospel to the non- Jewish world. But I don't want you to miss this thought. So it says he, that is God, revealed him, that is Jesus, to me, Paul said, so that I might preach him to others. Surely there's something here for us. If he's revealed Jesus to you this morning, you're a believer. Don't you long to share him with others? So what did it mean for Paul to preach him or to preach Christ? Uh, in verse 15 and verse 6, the revealing of Jesus to Paul and the Galatians was bound together with grace. We could go to many places throughout the New Testament to see what Paul actually said when he preached the gospel. He prioritised the events surrounding the life, death and resurrection of Jesus. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried and raised the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That he appeared to Peter and then the twelve. And then he appeared to more than 500. And then to James and the apostles. And then Paul says, what's the ball to me? And all of this was by the grace of God. Paul describes this, he says, this is a matter of first importance. This is a priority in the gospel. 
Jesus is God and he came to rescue and redeem and reconcile us to God through his life, death and resurrection. And these are truths, you know, that you could meditate upon and ponder forever without exhausting them. To the Ephesians, he says, these are the unsearchable riches of Christ. The idea that the love of God in and through Jesus is an ocean of wonder and blessing that a thousand lifetimes could not exhaust. But, and given everything that we have said, this might shock you this morning, it is quite possible that these false teachers believed that, but they wanted to add something to it. We can't get into all the detail of everything that was going on, but if you want to get an idea, have a look at Acts chapter 15 and also Acts chapter 11 to see some of the conversations Paul had been having with some of these people. Um, Paul wanted to impress upon them that the gospel is all of grace. A guy called Dick Lucas, who's an Anglican minister, commenting on this says, this is complicated in some ways. Because the churches in Galatia were not just saying, we get right with God by our own good works. They knew perfectly well that you don't get right with God by your own good works. But what they came to believe was that they could in some way mix up their own response to God with their religious righteousness or zeal. And in doing that, they could in some way commend themselves to God. They came to trust in the strength of their religion. And that's why Paul in verse 14 gives his testimony. Look, you think you were good as a Jew? I was better. But these things don't count for, for anything. He actually says that they're dangerous because these things led him to persecute Christians and the church of God. They must take hold of the gospel and not distort it into religion and thereby nullify the grace of God. The issue here that is all important that separates real Christianity from the false gospel is grace, not law. Grace is God's undeserved favour, freely given to sinners who are without excuse. It is God moving towards us when we are running away from him. Try to add the works of the law or religious seal to the gospel and we nullify the grace of God. And he says we make the death of Jesus if we do that purposeless. He summarises that in chapter 2. and In chapter 5 and verse 4, he says this. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen from grace. Now I've emphasised this because I think it's the main thing on Paul's mind as he writes this letter. But in Acts chapter 20, as Paul talks to the Ephesian elders for the last time, he says, I have testified to you of the gospel of the grace of God. 
And as he did this, he did it alongside a larger narrative of God's kingdom. He says in chapter 20, verse 25 of the book of Acts, I know all of you, among whom I went about preaching the kingdom of God, I will no longer see you. You will no longer see my face. And that's the bit that we get as well from Matthew's gospel. Jesus preached the good news, the gospel of the kingdom of God. God has come to rule. He's come to call a people to himself in the person of his son and through the events of Jesus' life, death and resurrection. Now thirdly, as, as we finish this morning, how does the gospel actually change your life? Have you ever wondered that? Look at verse 23. He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. Now here's where we get really practical. Okay, Paul, how does this work? You say that the law can't justify. Chapter 2, verse 15. And I can't keep it. And if I try to keep it, I'm obliged to keep it all. We get that from Deuteronomy chapter 27. So we recognise that, don't we? The law is not going to make us good. It won't commend us to God. And even if we try, we can't do it. We all get that, don't we? And yet, in the law of God, we see God's wisdom. The law is not bad. Jesus kept it fully on our behalf. So what's going on? How does this work? Well, our time is up today. So if you have any further questions, you can ask it. I'm only joking. But this is difficult, isn't it? Christians struggle with this. It can be a bit confusing. Paul gives us a clue. Chapter 2 and verse 20. Let me just read it to you very, very briefly as we, as we finish. How does all of this fit together? He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. The grace of God has rescued us from the demands of the law and from the consequences of breaking the law. We've been delivered, rescued. He actually uses the word freed. We've been freed. You are now free. You have died to the law. Not died to the law so you can do whatever you want, but died to the law in order that you might live for God. And actually the other way round. Because he says in that verse, it is God living through us, Christ's life in and through us by his spirit. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17, we read, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. 
And in the last chapter here, as you read this afternoon over a cup of tea, you might just pick up in the last few verses. He says, being circumcised or uncircumcised, that counts for nothing. Keeping the laws of the Torah, becoming part of Israel by observing the laws, that counts for nothing, but rather new creation. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. It's being in Christ that counts. If you want to take a bit of time to think more about that, maybe look at Ephesians 1 or John 17. But essentially what Paul is saying is it is about belonging to Jesus, being adopted into the family of God by trusting in him so that his life becomes our life. His death becomes our death. And you know, it says in that letter to the Ephesians that we are raised with him. When he was resurrected from the dead, raised from the dead, we are resurrected in him. So through his sinless life and atoning death and his victory over death, we become new humans, forgiven, and able now not to live slavishly under the law, but to live the Beatitudes, to become like Jesus. It's mind-blowing, really. And the result of this is our freedom. He says in chapter 5, for freedom, Christ has made you free. Don't use this as an opportunity for the flesh or to sin, but rather as an opportunity through love to love and serve others. And it is in this way that our lives are transformed. This is how we become like Jesus. And can I just say and encourage you as a group, you don't just do this on your own. We, we get told, don't we, read your Bible and pray. That is really good and helpful advice. But we don't live the Christian life in isolation on our own. It's not just me and Jesus. It's me and the Lord Jesus and one another. And that's how we grow in our faith. So in conclusion, the Bible is literature we should meditate on. That means we need to think. We need to let it sink into our hearts. And as we do that, and as I close, it'd be good to direct your thoughts in two ways. One, reflection, and the other, response. So I just want to ask you a couple of questions, just to think about. When it comes to the Bible, and specifically the Gospel, how do we know what is true? We need to reflect upon that. Notice Paul's life was hard. The impact of carefully teaching and correcting and preaching the good news didn't mean an easy life, did it? It was quite the opposite. And how does the gospel change a life? Paul's life, my life, your life. We're made in the image of God to reflect his glory. God created humans to do that. That has been ruined by sin, but through the gospel of grace, through Jesus, it is restored. We can be truly human and transformed into the image of the Lord Jesus. And secondly, response. I'll read these to you and then we'll pray. Firstly, the gospel is precious. Don't attempt to change it. It's all of grace. 
Secondly, the gospel is to be proclaimed. Preach Jesus to everyone. Thirdly, the gospel may bring persecution. Expect hardship. And fourthly, the gospel transforms. We can live in the light of it. Not law, but new creation. So in conclusion, you need Jesus. No one else. Nothing else. Only him. Shall we pray together? <clears throat> Father, I want to thank you this morning as we've looked into the pages of your word, your inspired word, written for our good, for our instruction. We ask that you'd help us to think upon these things, that they would go deep into our hearts, they would change the way we think, and that they would transform our lives. Help us, Lord, to become more like the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to be thankful that we do not earn our salvation. It is a free gift given by a generous God and accomplished through the Lord Jesus who lived a sinless and perfect life and yet took upon himself all of the consequences for our sin, paying for it when he died upon the cross and raising, rising from the dead victoriously. Help us to leave these things out. If there's anyone here this morning, Lord, who does not yet know you, we pray that you would open their hearts and that they would trust in Jesus alone for forgiveness and new life. We ask it all in and through his precious name.